This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you out there, I make music in my own home studio. Some of today's biggest hitmakers work from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you guys accomplish your big dreams. Now, on today's episode, we have a pretty special one. Today is a continuation of our conversation with Theo Hartman. So without further ado, here is part two with Theo Hartman. Is that a lot of what sounds accidental and casual and spontaneous and magical is in fact labored over in great detail for you know, hours, months, days, weeks. And you know, I, I read somewhere like the 52nd fade at the end of uh, Gaucho, it took them four hours, you know, to, to mix. Like I, I've done fade outs and spent a little bit of time on them, but that's a lot of time to spend on 50 seconds for a fade, you know? Um, right. So all that, I, I realize now that, you know, a lot of what sounded like, um, you, uh, you you have only to watch uh, live at Pompeii uh, studio outtakes from the recording of Dark Side of the Moon to observe how the solos on that album were constructed phrase by phrase. You know, they were comped literally three or four notes at a time. Well, I can I can um, think of uh, it it I can think of a piece of work of of my own. I'll send it to you. It's a it's a track called Moonlight. I've been working on it for over a year at this point, and and I. I did the solos. Uh, the last solo, the the take, the the final take, what I did on my 18th birthday uh, in 2019, and prior to that, it took me two weeks to figure out how to do this 16 bar solo correctly. Mm-hmm. And then I can think of a, a separate point. Uh, David Nell. I don't know if you know his name. Yeah. Um, he released uh, Sunny Day, okay. his record, a couple of years ago, what, 2018 at this point, 17 or 18, something like that. And the title track has a trumpet solo by this local guy named Will Maggin, um, mm-hmm. and uh, was actually a guest on the podcast, the second guest of the podcast. That's right. And, uh, Another name I, know. and uh, I talked to him about that solo because it sounds so effortless. It, you know, it's, it's a very, very simple solo, but it's incredibly memorable. And he went, I, I don't even remember the solo. And I can, I, I remember most of my solos, but I don't think I remember that one because I think that was six or seven takes pieced together. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and I was talking to a, another friend of mine who you may remember from the, the, the New York scene, good friend of my father's and, and, and dream speaks and all that, uh, Craig Dreyer. And oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I was talking to Craig and he was, he had this anecdote about, uh, sending off a track 
uh, a solo that he did for for a track, and he had it lined up correctly. And uh, when when it was sent in to these guys who were going to mix it, they didn't line it up correctly. But he did it to click, so it was all there, right? Yeah. And so they actually had his solo a beat off, right? And he listened back to it when they when they had, you know sent in the final mix and it was about to be released, and he, you know, had, he had to like <laughs> kick himself a little bit. Go, really? That's that's what you did. <laughs> you put my solo right. in the wrong place. You know, I had that same experience in reverse. I, I sent our basic track to uh, Jay Stapley, who's uh, done guitar work for me on a couple of recordings now and um he's in england and he sent back his i i i almost i'm i try to be good about this and i I don't know if i was just like too tired or what but i didn't i i do i do a uh, analog bounce here when i mix down and when i send a track out to somebody that i want to be zero to the timeline you know into a to a click i will normally bounce in the box so that the bounced track is on the exact same timeline if i go out of the box into my two track i have to bring the two track mix back into my daw and time align it with the um, multi-track because i don't actually have clock sync between my daw and my two track on purpose so i didn't do that last time alignment and i left him with a couple extra i don't know hundred samples at the beginning of the track I sent him. So it did not lock up to the time grade. I was it was to a click, but it was again not zeroed properly. And he recorded his guitar to it, sent back to me. And I knew I had to I had to restore time alignment. So I brought in my own track and uh his track and I used a transient um somewhere with you know a clean transient in the uh waveform to line everything up to the sample. And then I listened to his pass. And I was like, this isn't right. I didn't get the time alignment right. And uh, I checked in with him on it and like, no, I, I actually did get the time alignment right. It's just his approach to the pass he took at the tune was so structurally far afield from anything I had imagined in my mind's ear mm-hmm. that it, I heard it as wrong. I heard it as like a beat and a half out of time with with the music. And so I, I really like this. This took like two days for me to like process emotionally that this was his intention for for that track. And I think if I hadn't already worked with him a few times, I would have I would have struggled with like doing anything with the part. But then, so you know, he did he did uh, some just wonderful stuff on uh, Junkyard Bethlehem, which was a LP I did a year and a half ago uh, under uh, it's called the Shawnee Mission Project. It wasn't under my own name, and he also, um, when I was working on Shelter from the Storm for the Dylan stuff I released in September, um, Shelter from the Storm's a long song. You know, it's got a lot of a lot of verses, and it, it's kind of like you know, ninety nine bottles of beer on the wall. A lot of Dylan songs are like that, right? And um, you you struggle to like make it interesting or you know have some sort of arc to it, and he did a guitar pass on that, which was similarly sort of jarring to my ear in how it attacked the the phrasing and the and the the, the impulse of the thing. But but I built the song around it in the end. Like I stripped my, my track back down to my vocals and the drums and his guitar, and I re envisioned all the parts around that 
Um, and it was such an, it was such a great kick in the ass for that song, for that track, um, that as I started to build back up the parts around Jay's guitar, I started to realize what, you know, I started to catch, I think, insight into what he was, you know, hearing or going through playing that part to that song. And it brought that song to life in a way that it felt like it had a beginning, middle and end, you know, and, and that was like, like I said, that's all you can hope for a song that's got 11 verses. So, right. um, the, uh, this time, you know, when I got this guitar track for, uh, for simple, which is on the thing I just released, I was like, okay, I, I'm going to like, I'm going to trust that there's a rhyme and reason to this approach and subtract some of the stuff I've already put in there that he was obviously playing to. It wasn't like he was ignoring it. It was just like his relationship to it was completely other to than something I could and then I started to kind of you know put things back and in, in small parts to try to start work around and it had a similar effect so like I that's I guess that's the joy I derive as a producer more than as even as an artist I think is that kind of thing it's just letting somebody with them you know we've all got our own trip and our own we hear things our own way and we respond to them our own way and like letting somebody do that and um, taking them at their word, so to speak, that this is what they think it should be. And then making, you know, giving that a home in the track and then doing, you might do that with multiple players. And um, that's a real joy. Cause then, you, then we never know where the song's going to end up. We don't like, I, I now start songs with complete confidence, having no idea what they're going to sound like when they're done knowing that the best possible thing is that I can't imagine that. Cause if I can imagine how it's going to sound when it's done before I start, it ends up sounding pretty fucking boring <laughs> in the end. And it, it's because the, you know, the, the limits of one person's imagination, um, it doesn't hold a candle to what happens when you have two or, or three or four, you know? And so trying to capture that, um, those divergent, um, views and and uh vibes and bring them together becomes like a, it becomes a really fun thing to do as a as a uh as a producer you know it's the sort of uh it's like every every new track is this like christmas you know like this this whole new window into that song's potential from that musician's perspective um as a, as a writer as an artist it's traumatic <laughs> um <laughs> So, you know, like, I think one of the reasons I, I did three tunes by Dylan last fall is because A, I was bored. It was locked down. I wanted to do something. But B, I wanted to do something that wasn't my music. And I mean, I wanted to do music I like, but I wanted to do something not me and and have that degree of separation from it. And uh, what that taught me then when I started working on my own tunes to do this this last EP was to treat that like somebody else's music and to take that same liberty as a, a arranger or producer or engineer to bring in elements that sounded alien and let them be, let them be a part of what eventually came out of it and not, and to and essentially leave in the dust, whatever my um, vision might've been way back when I wrote the song or when I uh, started laying down the basics for it. Um, and and let that process take it over um and you know i i survived it uh you know 
quite well emotionally this time. But that I remember that track um, coming in and thinking like, I've really fucked up the time alignment on this. It's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, he means it. You know, it's like once I once I figured out what he meant, it was all it was all okay. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's the thing, you know, and I I agree with your I agree with your uh, uh, with your thinking. I I I come up with a little bit of a different approach, um, but but a similar one. I I start with an idea. And I, I have a general idea of what a song should sound like. Of course, when, you know, we've got to finish the song, have, have a fleshed out sections and, you know, figure out the arrangement. Once we do that, then we figure out, you know, I'll have a general idea of what it should sound like, knowing full well that whatever I do to achieve that goal will be built upon by my friends, outside producers, uh, mentors, other ears telling me hey this would be cool or maybe this mix move would benefit you in that section there um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it, it, of course you know it's it's at the end of the day it's your music you you should have have an end goal um of what you'd like it to sound like but it it's definitely a, a benefit to be able to look upon music and go well what do you guys think? How, how should this be? You know? And I, I do, you, I appreciate Do you that. guys, um, do you do any like mastering stage of your recordings? Like do you, when you finish a mix, do you hand it to somebody who is a uh, quote unquote neutral third party observer and have them master it? Have you, I would you like to, but I haven't. Um, it's something, um, it's something that I should do, um, but have not yet done. Uh, we should, you know, uh, I, I'd, I'd be happy to take it. I'm not a mastering engineer and I, God knows I don't have a mastering room, but, um, I'd be happy to take a pass at something like that on a track of yours, um, to just for the sake of giving you something to react to. Um, and the reason I, I say that is because I have, um, historically been very reluctant to. Um, as a, as a musician with no money in the first place, go out yep. and sink an extra, you know, one to 300 bucks to master a group of songs. Um, when I can just do that myself, <laughs> you know, I, I can make things loud. That's easy. You know, like I can, I can fake it. Um, I can even make, you know, what I think are probably sane judgments about how to, um, master something but the point is it's not me doing it and i realize that there's such tremendous value in the um in in the handoff of the work to uh someone who hasn't heard it three million times i mean like i can't count how many times i have and you know this from working um you you will go over and over and over Oh my God. Um, Entire songs, small passages to the point where you can reconstruct an entire mix and play it back for yourself in your head. And, and I do this too. I mean, this is, this is working, right? You know, I can go for a walk and make mixed decisions while I'm walking around without listening to anything because I can hear it so well. And that is crippling to objectivity. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it is. I, um, I can, I can tell you right now. So, so the the track that I've been working on that I was just talking about the guitar solos I I, I sent it off to uh, Tree Adams 
and his daughter actually sang on it. And it's a it's a really cool tune. I'll, I'll send it to you. I'll, I'll send you both versions when when the when the second one is done. But he told me, well, where do you want this track to go? And I went, well, I have really no idea. To be perfectly honest with you, there's there's kind of two ways this could go. That you could make this sound like it came out of 1978 if you do it right, or it could be this very modern jazz pop sort of thing, this this hip hop jazz thing that's been going on with guys like Anderson Pack and Kamazi Washington and and Thundercat and everybody who's, you know, jazz trained musicians who who are now, you know, in in the hip hop space. So it could right. it could be either one of them. And he went, well, do both. Do 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 a vintage mix, make it sound like it came from 1978, and then do another mix where you time align everything to the grid. Maybe not all your fills, but time align everything. You know, everything on the one, two, three, four. Uh, do it to the grid, and then make the mix moves based on that. And so I've been spending days upon weeks, (laughs) too much time. I I really need to like stop getting distracted and and fucking finish the thing. But you know, I've been spending so much time on these time alignments that I can tell mm-hmm. I, I, and I do it in two bars per, per track. Mm-hmm. I, I do okay. two bars and then move, you know, two bars, check, move, two bars, yeah. check, move. Yeah. So I can tell you, I, I could probably beatbox you the kick drum from every from two bar bars, 34. Right. Yeah, yeah, from, yeah. from bar 34 <laughs> to bar 36, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's, terrible you know at, you know, at the point where you can at the point where you know how much bleed from from your kick mic is it, it at the point where you know that in your head and you can like predict it it it's it, it you know you've you're getting a little bit too far though you know all that stuff comes back and pays off in spades the next recording because you, you oh, everything yeah. that you everything oh, you yeah. have to fix as an engineer that you could have just played right or that way in the first place I am a much better player for every track I engineer because everything that I fuck up as a musician I have to fix as an engineer. Right. So I I very I, I become the source of my own pain and and that feedback loop is learn is teaching me to do things like you know no change the strings check the intonation tune tune again tune you know every take tune you like really get everything locked in make sure when you, you do those hear your click track <laughs> yeah make <laughs> make take great pains to have everything perfect at the beginning because the amount of time it takes to make it that way later is is you know days of your life um the the thing that blows my mind uh having sent off uh, sort of took the plunge and sent off um junkyard bethlehem in 2019 to mastering um, I didn't do mastering on the uh, 2016 collaboration I did with Richard Stuver at the Red Letter Baby album. We we sort of self mastered that, so we brought it up to like uh, you know 14 luffs uh, loudness for streaming services our, ourselves, but we didn't let anybody else touch it. We just kind of you know um, the the stuff the feedback I got from from the mastering engineers on Junkyard and and the two EPs in the last year was. Um, it's really interesting to me as the engineer who had mixed it to hear like, so, you know, this last pass, um, Adam Hagar from, uh, Mount Olympia mastering, he did the, the, um, uh, Dylan stuff in the fall and he did the, um, the one just now, uh, chemistry, you know, he, I would say, you know, he's not, he's not there to give me mixed feedback. He's there to master it. So I, I don't, 
it's, this isn't something I'm like asking people to do for me, but I do say like, if it will make your life any easier as the mastering engineer for me to change something in my mix, I've got recall. So let me know. And so, you know, Adam said, yeah, I would take the snare drum down 2dB here. I would DS the lead vocal here and I would, you know, uh, bring the kick in the bass up, you know, one and a half dB on this track or whatever. And incredibly, you know, mastering engineers have the luxury of relatively, uh, what's the word, um, consistent reference environments so they can make prescriptions like, you know, change this particular instrument by 2 dB with some confidence, one hopes. Right. Um, I can barely do that kind of level of analysis here because I, I have a decent room, but I don't have, um, you know, I don't have ATC monitors. I don't have, you know, I'm not sitting in a control room of a studio. I'm sitting in a freaking tenement in Berkeley. So the, um, th they'll tell me to do these things and I'll do them without really being able to necessarily hear the full consequence of their recommendation in the unmastered mix. It may sound negligible to me. I mean, not completely negligible, but like, eh, I could have left it either way. But then I'll send it to them and they'll master it and I'll see exactly why they had done that because of what, what else they're trying to do, you know, to get the mix to, to, to work. Right. And so there's something about that level of feedback that after the fact that, you know, somebody who has no, they have no stake in this music whatsoever. It's, this is their day job. And they just, you know, master the track for them. Like, I want to give them more credit than that. They're, these guys are really gifted engineers and they do get their heads inside the music i'm not saying they don't do that but what i'm saying right, is but, they could care less but it, about the artistic decisions because they're not the artist right and so that stuff um i'm finding it i'm finding that is also like a huge relief in a way to let somebody else take the wheel on that stuff and trust that they know what they're doing better than i do um it takes so much of the tension that builds from the endless hours of editing and timelining and mixing all this stuff that you get so close to it and everything it's this stacking champagne glasses you know right and it hassle and, yeah. and it's totally you know if you if you get too too into it it's completely bruised ego uh if if you if you yeah. get too far into it but a mastering engineer will humble you quickly i mean i i my i think my favorite thing when i when i think about mastering engineers is uh a quote of Fab DuPont, and it's a it's a YouTube video he made years ago at this point, uh, where he talked about mastering, and he went, uh, "How many times do you make a record? Well, for an artist, you make what a record every two years max. Uh, recording engineer makes one every couple of months. Uh, mix engineer makes them two weeks a month if they're not so busy. Uh, a mastering engineer makes a record a day. Yeah, yeah." Yeah. I mean, uh, Chris Lord Elch does some videos on YouTube and, um, you know, he's, he, he needs no introduction as a, as a mix engineer, but he does his mixes in a day. Um, and now I, I'm pretty sure he has help. I, I, I'm pretty sure people set them up, but oh, he comes in, he listens and makes his decisions and leaves. And there is no, he does not expose himself to the music any more than he has to, um, to make the decisions. And as a result, you know, kind of clings to whatever objectivity he may have had walking in, <laughs> um, right. as a way of 
of bringing that to the to the table um and so that that's really inf- that's a, that's affected my own approach here i like i i will very um purposely not listen to my music um for a period of time in order to come back and have that uh as best i can have that sort of fresh years oh my god what was i thinking moment um as often as i can um and just you know and it, and it helps it also helps um uh to protect my hearing you know because there's uh, i don't listen to things loud much i don't mix it loud volumes very often i'll check but i won't i won't spend time at loud volumes um but listening to music a lot um all day long or you know four hours or whatever it's fatiguing and it may even not be physiologically fatiguing but it's it's mentally fatiguing and so uh silence is my friend a lot of times you know for coming back to the music with the ability to think clearly um and to hear what's really there um i mean ultimately i think being able to hear what's really there is the is the uh the holy grail of challenges uh as an artist recording your own music because you can often hear what you want to be there (laughs) so much better than you can hear what's actually there um and you know being able to sort of uh um see behind your own curtain of um of aspirational listening and and hear the sort of uh, the naked truth of what's coming out of the speakers um, takes a lot of um, uh, discipline, and I think some of the discipline is is being away from it, you know, to um, to be able to come back to it as a as a innocent bystander and go, oh my God, really? No, you know, or whatever you you know, um, whatever your reaction is to something, um, saying like, oh, that was the right thing to do or not. Um, sometimes it's apparent in the moment. I mean, there have been, there have been times that I've done things that as soon as I've hit stop on the recording transport, I was like, yeah, that was the one or whatever, but it's not always that way. It's usually not that way. It's usually a a gradual process of um, of that, you know, that building that, you know, um, that whether it's being comped or whether it's simply the process of making that song into what it is, choosing its direction. Those forks in the road are like you're talking about. Uh, is this a you know '70s jazz or a, a you know jazz hip hop um, thing? Um, those feel really seismic, especially if they occur like halfway through the recording process, <laughs> where you're like, "Is this?" You know, I was like, I started out making a um, you know a rockabilly tune, and it suddenly turned into a headbanger or something. Those those moments um the there's like the do we do one or the other there's the like you said do we do both question um then there's also the question is like do these can these two things coexist in the same track even you know like i find myself asked i I, the first track on the last ep i did simple here uh chemistry the ep the track simple um was a lot like that because it kind of starts out like a slow slow roller uh, almost countrified kind of thing mm-hmm. um, and then it kind of ascends in stages from that into more of a um, forward propelled um, you know uh, it's called like 
sort of folk rocky thing and then um and then it just it just kind of loses it into it turns into a um uh a stomp you know a, a sort of a punk rant kind of vibe um at the end and uh i i think this sort of genre dissonant um in a way but at the over the course of recording it, I was kind of like, fuck it, let it be genre distant. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be any one of those things. You know, nobody's holding a gun to my head and saying, we need a country album, Theo, or anything like that. Nobody's making me make the music at all. Right. Except for me. Um, so the, uh, the, the answer was, yeah, do both, but like do it all on the same take <laughs> or the same track. Um, but yeah, that's, that's hard stuff. Like when you're the writer, you know, cause it, it feels like you almost have to like throw everything out that you thought. And then you're faced with the like, well, if it's not what I thought it was, what is it? It's, it's a moment to come to that in the middle of something, you know, after you've already started to build it. No, it's a, it, it's a strange operation, you know, and be it something where the genre sort of changes in the middle of the song, or if you're, doing it as two separate entities. I mean, it, it, I think in my case, it's, it's <laughs> even though the, uh, even though the time aligning of all these, of all these tracks is very hard. It, it's still, you know, probably a little bit simpler, uh, operation because they're, they're two separate entities at the end of the day, but they're still, you know, the, uh, they're still the same bass tracks. All, all the, all the horns are yeah. still the same. All the, all the, uh, you know, uh, uh, guitars are still the same. The bass is still the same. Uh, the Rhodes and the Hammond are still the same. It's all it's all the same track. The the difference is going to come with uh, electronic additions and synthesis and all, and other things. But essentially, at the end of the day, they'll they'll be the same track. It it really comes into play when when it's you know completely different. And you know, I mm-hmm. or 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 when something is genre dissonant or 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 sort of transcends genres and and goes between them mm-hmm. and it's a it's a it's a strange and fascinating way to work definitely I, i'm i don't know if i've really done much of it but i'm always interested to hear from people who have it it's it's cool it it's different um it's it's, it's a workflow <laughs> it's um it, yeah it's also like a uh so I, I've definitely grown up in a world where you had to kind of pick your genre right. to make your music and it had to file and that, that hasn't gone away. I mean, there's an entire team of analysts at Pandora who are, you know, categorizing music for this, for their service, you know, all day long. And so that, that denominational uh, impulse is still strong. And I think commercial, success assumes you have identified your market and targeted it with the music that it you know you you pick your genre for a reason it's because you're trying to establish who you are to an audience and and all that if if you remove that requirement for making music though what you said is yeah you, <laughs> it's if it's your music it's your music it, it, whether it conforms to someone else's descriptions or or divisions of genre is like literally irrelevant in that um sense 
it only becomes relevant if you expect your music to be um, placed alongside all the other music and assessed in some way. Um, and so I think I'm slowly trying to unlearn the genre thing on purpose just because it's nice to not have it as a um, sort of a sword of Damocles hanging over every decision you make as a musician or an engineer is like, oh, that's too that's too rock. That's too country, you know, um, or that's too Western. That's too country. Um, the, uh, the, just, you know, it's what I played. Fuck it. You know, um, right. <laughs> it's all it is. Um, right. That that's, I, I mean, that's liberating, but I I'm saying that from the privilege of a musician who has no one's expectations, um, you know, r- riding up against me for, for the next thing I do to be any which way. Um, I hope, never for that to change by the way but i i do acknowledge that you know that's a um an artificially sheltered reality from the the vagaries of of um the business i guess uh, as it exists um but you know there's more as we progress into in time here in the 21st century um there is a lot of genre destruction disruption or destruction i'm not sure which that I, I dig. Um, you know, Radiohead was one of the first examples of that, that really sort of, you know, hit me upside the head when I, um, when I, I first sort of poured over Kid A and Amnesiac when they came out. And I realized I was listening to this kind of like, uh, it was like a collage of very recognizable sounds that had been pulled from like grunge, classic rock, electronica, you know, like all those things. And they were being dropped together in this weird kind of kaleidoscope of music that was entirely new and original and I thought pretty inventive of them. But what I dug was that none of those things were entirely alien in and of themselves. Like I could hear, oh, that sounds like a video game or like, oh, that sounds like a Rhodes or that sounds like, you know, that sounds like the atmospheric organ of a Pink Floyd album or something like, you know, it's all very just like really familiar and close. And then yet none of it was being used in a way that was familiar. That was new. That was a new music. Um, so is that scavenging? I don't know what to call that, but there is something about that sonic, the, the reuse and reapplication of very tried and true um, sounds that we know and being re, you know, reassembled and reimagined um, to be uh, something completely other. Like if you were to take Kid A as an album, as the only example of that, groups music for instance like what would you call that genre like it, it would be kind of meaningless to call it any genre because it's such an unusual thing um you can say what it's not very easily but it's hard to say what it is um i like that there's a lot more music coming out like that now and i think it's because we've kind of done rock we've done punk we've you know all of these things happened and it, there there are certainly you know many of us carrying on traditions of certain styles of music. Like I, <laughs> a dear friend of mine <laughs> commented that I seem to be inspired by the sounds of the late 20th century. Um, <laughs> as a, it's like, you know, you, you take your compliments where you can get them, I guess. Sure. The, uh, the, uh, you know, it, it, that, and that, that's just me, you know, that's, that's fine. But like the, the, uh, the fact that there are so many things coming out now that, um, are, uh, disrespectful of um 
past you know divisions between you know you could have a motown sound along with a you know uh electronic sound or something like that today and it wouldn't it wouldn't throw anybody because um we can take it all now um right and it seems like a lot of pop music is sort of capitalizing on that by bringing in those those ticklers those those pointers to these uh tropes but but putting them together in something that is itself very much um it's hard to imagine it having happened 30 years ago, even though all those sounds existed 30 years ago, there wasn't the sensibility of, um, of, of adaptive reuse right. <laughs> in, 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 this, in the sonic culture of pop music that there is today. You know, it's, it's funny that you bring up Motown because Hitsville USA is one of those, I mean, it's a, a it's a museum now, but you know, it's one of those studios that it, it has so much history and, and that sound is, you know, the sound of a lot of people, it, it's what a lot of people think of as music in, in their heads, you know, when, when somebody thinks of yeah. music or, or, uh, of, of, uh, a, a certain genre or, or, you know, their, their youth or whatever. And I've always been fascinated. And if I ever had a, you know, a gajillion dollars, I, I think I would, I would love to to close down the uh, Hitsville USA Museum for for a couple of weeks and use it as an actual studio to make some kind of hip hoppy jazz sort of thing, you know, with with a lot of those modern LA kind of jazz inspired uh, hip hop guys, the the Anderson Packs and Kamazi Washingtons and Kendrick Lamars of of the world, and I'd be very interested to see what they would do with those sounds, with that gear, um, and with that room that was you know so instrumental in in their careers i guess you know the the, yeah. the evolution of music going from that room to that you know the the muscle shoals studio is sort of the same way it was such a um it, it became a sound of music uh made in it and um you know it's like the, the i was just watching the uh, documentary of uh, I forget which Stones album it was, was um, Ghost Head Super, whatever came right before Exile. They were at Muscle Shoals, and uh, that that room, uh, that console, um, the the engineering practices of that organization, you know, defined the sound of uh, so much music that was played on radio. That you know, like you said, it sort of that's the sound <laughs> almost more than not entirely, but more than some of the acts themselves that, that, um, that cradle, uh, for the albums was the sort of, um, thing that we remember. Um, I, I had it. So I, you know, I, I'm a very, I'm a latecomer to, uh, to being an audio engineer and mixing engineer. And so I, you know, I made some record, uh, record with, the uh, uh, Parish Blue, the first band and, 1987 that was a two inch tape 24 track um to lp and uh did some stuff with sam bisbee in the 90s that was also on tape but that was sam's gig so i didn't really get involved in the engineering at all and um started working on dawes in like 98 using uh cakewalk and soundforge and you know tinkering around doing demos and stuff but really getting the thing to sound finished was always kind of beyond my grasp. And I, I struggled a lot, especially working in digital domain to, to get things to sound 
like how I wanted them to, uh, when they were mixed down. And I, uh, this is around the time I saw you at, uh, the beach chalet. Um, I was mixing, um, it was a live recording that Robert Cogswell had done of the heart of gold band reunion, uh, with, uh, Donna Jean and, um, Bob Weir, the Sweetwater and, uh, Mill Valley in 2016 on Jerry's birthday. And, uh, Robert had done this really nice multi-track of the stage and, and also the board. And, um, I was doing a, a mix down, uh, for, uh, Greg, the Anton, the drummer. Um, right. And I took the tracks over to TRI, the Tamil Pace Research Institute mm -hmm. in Marin and was in studio B with, um, Mike McGinn, the engineer there, and we, you know, we, they have this really nice uh, MCI console. It's a Sony. It's like a nine thousand, I think. And we put all the tracks up through the console, and uh, we did a little bit of level checking and some left and right panning. I don't think we used any EQ. Um, this was also this was going to be for archive.org, so I think we were trying to not use EQ and stuff like that. We we're trying to keep it pretty much like you know a. a it was the, it was for the taper community so we were trying not to doctor it up too much with we were not not too much you know sweetening sure. and things we just want to be like a document of what happened and um but get rid of shit like phase problems and stuff so we uh we ran that out into um an api 2500 compressor bus compressor and then into a limiter and then to the two track and we didn't turn on the compressor of the API. We just let it go through the API. And immediately when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, what is it? And he's like, oh, we haven't, don't worry, we haven't set it yet. And I was like, no, that's fine. Don't set it. It's like, what is that? And it was, it was literally the, um, the transformers and the 2520 op amp of the, uh, the input section of the API was giving that mix a sound that I can only describe as sort of like the Sound City console sound, which I associate very much with the rhythm section of Fleetwood Mac on like rumors. So it's a kick drum and a bass that hit you in the solar plexus and it feels good. Like it hits you in the chest and it kind of gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling in your tummy every time it does. And it concentrates that thump in the most like physically pleasing way. And keeps everything else very stable in in you know in in time and space in the mix like it does there, there's not a lot of uh there's no mushiness everything seems very you know sort of solid and present and then that bass focus um and the second i heard it i realized that was the sound of every record i had ever heard on somebody's turntable growing up in the 70s <laughs> that i loved and it was that it was it was nothing more than that particular tool um to be more specific it was the fact that it was going through the transformers on the mci console which didn't hurt the transformer in the 2500 and the 2520 op amp which is really somewhat unique sounding thing um that's always been in the api 2500s and in their consoles by the way right and i was like oh man all this like literally 20 no, so 18 years of thrashing around inside software to figure out how to set the EQ, how to set the compression, all this busy work 
to try to get that sound when all I really needed to do was use the right tool, which happened to be an outboard piece of gear. Um, oddly enough, having heard that sound and understanding how it was achieved, I've been able to get much closer to it in the box since. But I doubt I would have ever gotten there if I hadn't kind of you know, had the experience of just having that everything kind of suddenly snap into place by putting it through um, that API. Uh, it's not, you know, and, and it's not a magic bullet. Like I wouldn't do that with jazz. It's not the right sound for that. Or, uh, right. you know, it's got, it's got too much sort of propulsion in the low end, but if you want four on the floor rock to really be all four on that floor, there's, there's, it turns out there's a really easy way to get closer to that. And that's to use the, the same tools that were in a lot of the analog consoles back in the day that just as a matter of course, the tracks ran through them. Um, so that that was kind of like a, that was a happy moment for me to discover that, you know, it, it wasn't just that I sucked as an engineer. It was that there were things that were true about how those sounds were achieved that just aren't if you're spending all your time in the box. Um, so I, that's, that's sort of when I started to look at, um, changing my approach recording so i i do uh i record in the box i mix um through a summing analog summing uh matrix um back into a, a digital two track um that like i said is not clock synced and um that allows me to take any recording and um do the do the summing in analog which i find uh, enormously beneficial in terms of uh, depth and clarity of sound field, right, and also um, take advantage of something like I don't happen to have an API twenty five hundred here. Um, Boy, would but be if nice. I did, I would I could use <laughs> it. You know, I could use it on my on my two bus or my drum bus or something like that. I have other things I do use, but um, it lets me not try to fake something in the computer that I can achieve in the real world. Sure, and. Um, it also like the it goes through a couple transformers by the way when it goes into analog summing and I think that 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 helps too that um, uh, without getting too mystical about it there's something about the transformers that uh, seems to um, help the the base organize itself a little better like you have well, to get your low end organized right. for everything to work in the mix right. and there's something about the transformers that I can make better decisions about the low end in my mix when it's being summed in analog than I can when it's being summed in the box. Um, no, I understand that. Uh, there, a, a few years ago, you had, you had sort of done some studio upgrades and you, you had a bunch of Behringer gear that you just sort of handed to me and were, I, I remember you looking at me and going, you know, I don't really want to go through the process of selling this on Craigslist or Facebook marketplace. Here you go. Um, was that, was that the eight channel, uh, converter, eight channel converter, uh, a four channel, uh, compressor and gate, and then oh, yeah. and then a yeah. lexicon, uh, yeah, reverb and delay unit, and a headphone yeah. amp. The headphone amp died yeah. pretty quickly, and then the uh, the the compressor gate thing kind of went shortly after. But at, oh, no. at the is Behringer, how could how could it possibly? <laughs> you know, it it, it was kind of okay, but in the time that I did have that, and it's a still unreleased track i don't know why we haven't released it maybe maybe it's just my own idiocy but 
I have this track that we did and it's com- almost completely inter- improvised called Strawberry Jam. And I could not for the life of me get the mix right. And it took me putting it through every piece of analog gear that I had, um, save for that headphone amp. I don't know why you'd want to put your track through a headphone amp. Anyway, uh, I as soon as I started mixing and taking it out of the box, everything just went, it, it was all there. It was correct. And I printed it and I went, okay, done. Great. Fantastic. I did it. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it, it, it my experience with the in the box, out of the box thing was like when I finally experienced out of the box again, after laboring for so many years, getting in the box to sound right. It was kind of like taking years and years of a foreign language and never really feeling like I was making any progress with it only to be told that I no longer needed it. <laughs> and yeah. And it, you know, I, now I, I spend a lot of time trying not to use effects in EQ. Like I, I, I'm very light with them. Um, as light as I can be when I go, I, I tend to try to EQ everything going in and then not do too much in the box and use the box as a simple, you know, tape machine. Right. To play through the analog. Um, and then I, I also, I try not to use any two bus compression or, or effects, leave that to the mastering engineers. Um, and that's usually what ends up taking the longest is to like get the mix to sound balanced and energetic and right on the edge. Um, without using anything to kind of, you know, uh, sweeten up or, or spice up the whole stereo mix, um, tends to be the challenge. Cause I, I fell back on that a lot, you know, as in my early days learning mixing, I was always putting something on the mix bus to like, you know, um, hype it up and it, f- it feels good for a minute, but you, you, it, it ends up creating something pretty, um, damaged sounding. I understand uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I take a, I, I take a little bit of a different approach. I, I have a, uh, I mean, I mix in reason. So, so essentially, mm-hmm. you know, we have a, in reason, there's a virtual SSL, uh, uh, clone for lack of a better way of describing. Yeah. Right. And so what I'll tend to do is on mixes, and this is mostly because we end up recording loud and this is mostly due to the fact that, you know, dynamics and horn players, you know, and getting mic gains right, unless you're riding the knob, you're, you, you got a lot of dynamics to deal with. So, uh, <laughs> what I end up doing because my mixes end up very, very loud is for both just a little bit of color and mostly to avoid having to turn my master fader down, I'll have the bus compressor on and I'll have the threshold to the point where it's not really doing anything and I'll just deal with the makeup gain. Um, and I'll turn yeah. the makeup gain way down. And I'll maybe put, I'll set the release time to automatic and, you know, a medium attack time and it'll get the, the top end of everything. And it makes my drums sound better. That's, that's pleasant. Um, glues the drums better, especially when you're only using a, a kick, a snare and a, and a pair of overheads. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, short, short of that, I, I, I do like you, I, I avoid uh, as, as much two mix processing as I can. I'm, I'm exploring bus processing more um as a way to kind of cheat that because like the the, the two mix like i i didn't use bus busing much um on the red letter baby album and i started to use it on junkyard bethlehem and i'm really using it now and it 
you know, again, I, I'm making the same kind of music. It's it's like rock. Um, so you know, it's organized in similar ways from project to project. So I've, I'm starting to accumulate sort of practices. But like you know, grouping your drums on a bus, for instance, or drums and bass together on a bus, or grouping your midfield elements like your rhythm guitar and your right. keyboards and stuff, well, and then the, the foreground stuff on its own bus, and like giving them all different dynamic. Di- excuse me dynamic envelopes welcome to the club so so very happy to have you (laughs) so it's you know like as a way of creating background midground and foreground information that's stably so like that stays there it's so incredibly helpful yeah it it creates the sort of architecture of the mix without slamming it um what's really interesting then after that gets you know mastered and it does get compressed um hopefully not slammed unless that's what you're going for but you know after that stuff gets kind of squoze up against the glass and you can see every good and bad mix decision you ever made in gory detail you know in the, in the final master um those different dynamic envelopes of the buses um become they become the animating factor of the mix almost as much as the music itself and like that's i I think that the biggest learning for me was that it's not just what the musicians played it's how you treated it that causes the mix to have whatever its vibe and its groove and it's it's sort of shimmy is and the um that that's all and obviously that those dynamic envelopes are reacting directly to musical information so it's not like it isn't what the musicians are doing but it's about how that gets treated in terms of you know does it make your hips move um that you know does it make you want to dance or die as Wayne Grant said right. um, those those decisions are a lot of times in the in the treatment of that stuff um into the final mix as the sort of interface to the listener um that uh, there's a lot of magic in that and there's also a lot of magic in um i'm trying to think of the right words to describe this but uh i'm not a filmmaker but i think of it in terms of cinematography but like you have in a in a scene there might be multiple shots and you might be tracking something through all of those shots from beginning to end as the thread that unites them all but they're all taken from different points of view and your decisions about which camera you're using and when and what's in it and what's not and even the soundtrack of that film or the lighting changes, um, all of those subtle shifts that are happening all the time while you're watching that movie, are they're animating your experience of what's happening in a way that you, we take for granted, hopefully, as, as viewers. But like they're all conscious decisions on the part of the creators to, um, to make a slight adjustment to the level of the music or to the dialogue or to the lighting or to the camera angle or the uh, change scene here or the, all those things that keep you at the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen next whereas the like single shot straight it's like the opposite of 2001 space odyssey where you wonder nothing because it's the same shot for 20 minutes or something like that <laughs> right the, the, the um they were obviously not going for that effect there they were going for something different but the the idea that you have as a storyteller with your work to hold the reader's interest and the ways you do that and in mixes that animating factor of the bus compressors is a big one but also so are all the micro level changes you perform over the course of the mix where you bring something up and then take it down or change two things here and there as a live musician like as somebody who just performed songs more than i recorded them for the early part of my life 
I kind of forgot that, you know, how much of that goes on with the volume knobs on our guitars while we're playing and things like that. And the real-time decisions about dynamics and stuff. And when you're mixing, you have to kind of recreate a lot of that stuff uh, if it wasn't done in the performances in a way to cause the song to develop and evolve. And so those animations of levels or of instruments coming in and out um, of the introduction of a part or the removal of it that create the sense of uh, time passing and new things, interesting things coming along in the, in the, song as it goes by um i i don't take that stuff for granted anymore either uh, what i learned was that you know i i would very often approach a song with too many parts like too many instruments and too many ideas at once but to a listener i might only need to hear the harmonica for th- 10 seconds at the beginning of a song and the harmonica never comes back again. You know, it's gone. Like it's not like there's a harmonica part playing through the whole song, but the fact that it was there at all as a listener, I remember that. I think of that song as having a harmonica in it, even though it was only around for the first ten seconds. It it stuck with me. It's it's there. You know, it 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 got added to the stack of things I remember about the song, and so there were all these opportunities to bring those ideas that combined would overwhelm the mix you know it would be an intractable wall of sound but there's ways to bring them in and take them out again to introduce the idea and remove you know like it it sort of leaves its mark on your memory of the song as it goes by even though you're not making it present for the whole song um that sort of judiciousness in um giving giving each little thing its due but no more um, was another big uh, uh, sort of discovery, I guess, um, because we have, you know, we synthesize everything we hear in a song into a memory of it, and it can contain all of those many parts, but it doesn't mean you have to have all the instruments playing for the whole track. Um, and so there's this this process of deciding how you create those memories of those things and get them out of each other's way again um, to to, you know, essentially preserve the the space that I think is ultimately what makes the, the, the songs inhabitable right. <laughs> in the first place. Right. Uh, no, it's an interesting idea, you know, it, at the point where you're doing things. And this is something I have to learn a lot of, um, especially with, you know, parts, parts coming in and out is, you know, you, you really don't need everything all the time in a, in a song. So things should come in and out uh, with, with the track. And, and that's, you know, that's something I've been learning in the last, you know, year and a half, two years is that I I really have to find and, and genuinely ask myself, okay, what are the core tracks here? What has to stay this entire time and what is extraneous? What is extra? What, what can I put here? How will that affect the arrangement? What will this make it sound like? You know, and so it's a it's a it's an interesting way to think about a music, uh, a piece of music or or a musical idea, and it's it's, I guess, on top of being a good arrangement piece and a good part of learning musicianship, it's a really really good lesson in production and being a producer and understanding that uh that way of working and thinking right 
Yeah, and it's a it's a great lesson in humility because it's very often, you know, the track that you like the best solo of your life turns out to be like an inappropriate thing for that moment. Right. <laughs> um, and so like I I I know that some of the um the you know guitar playing I'm most proud of, which is typically accidental on my part. Um never made it onto a few of the tracks I released because it just wasn't the right thing, you know, mm-hmm. for that moment. Um and that's that's humbling too. But like it's um it uh, so I um Dave, the the drummer from Parish Blue that I went on to play with, with Sam Bisbee, um he's a he went into um became an actor and uh eventually a director and a, a screenwriter. <laughs> Um, in addition to being a phenomenal drummer, um, he, you know, he, he just, I send him tracks every now and then, um, I've got a, a few I'm working on right now that he played drums on and, um, you know, a lot of his feedback when he gives it is put in terms of, um, film, which is his language. Um, you know, he talks about spotlighting, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I sometimes try to approach listening to the mix uh from that standpoint and real you know if i if i assume the worst about the listener that you know i I have a microscopic attention span and um the inability to process two pieces of information at the same time and if i use that as my template for whether the mix is right or not it helps me it helps me delete a lot of things um that need to go and it's sometimes a hard process to let go of stuff that you've labored over, or that was actually a part of like the sort of foundational concept you had of how that song was going to sound. Um, but, but yeah, it's like I, you know, um, my younger daughter, Sarah is really, um, she's a huge Billie Eilish fan and had a chance to go see her at uh, Bill Graham civic before she kind of blew up. And like, I think she came back to chase and it was like, tickets were like, you know, $280 for the, nosebleed seats so um sarah got to see her before she was huge um, yeah before it was that out of reach yeah and it was and bill graham's a very you know intimate venue you can get right right on the floor up at the, it's kind of yeah. a cool place I was, yeah i, and, I uh, thought about going to that show kind of regret um, not given, she was she was hoarse when she got back she had been screaming so much she had she had a blast <laughs> um, but we've got we've got a, a couple of billy eilish albums here and i was just playing one the other day and like man you know there's almost nothing in a couple of those tracks i love it you know there's a there's a huge fucking kick there's a kick the size of jupiter but there's not there's not a lot of instrumentation and what instrumentation there is is pulled way 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 back um right it's it's sort of like it's like a band in the distance and then this massive you know pulse and then her voice which is really dry and foreground and un and doubled triple i think actually in a lot of places it could be. I mean, if it is, hats well, off. You know, it's really, it's, it's really clean. Phineas um, does has done a lot of mix breakdowns. They, I, from what it seems yeah. like, they seem to be. You know, obviously they're not. They're they're you know famous. They're not they're not super accessible. But for for being who they are, they're relatively accessible, and they seem to you know they seem to have granted an, enough of a look into their production process. And Phineas is really cool about. looking at that stuff and so he's done a lot of mixed breakdowns of what they did in those tracks and it's 
crazy because they have so many tracks in in each of those songs. You know, there are so many right. different things in there, but the majority yeah. of those things are vocals and random sampled sound effects. They're not actually instruments. The instrumentation itself is like you're saying tiny, but there's the, you know, in in bury a friend i i'm i can think of this because it has the most sound effects that are kind of prominent step on the glass staple the tongue you know uh those those sound effects are like you know they sampled them and then built them up and built them up and built them up um and that's where a lot of that instrumentation seemingly came from or the how the high track count came from but as far as instrumentation it's so small and it's impressive Another track that I can think of, which is not a Billy thing, but uh, Imagine Dragons. Do you remember when Radioactive came out, and and the yeah. and the 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 verses were essentially that huge bass drum was you know I probably oh God that that bass drum sounds like it's the size of the fucking sun, and and it's that bass drum and the clap, and I think what an right. acoustic guitar, right. And I think that was kind of similar for Believer, their other big hit. Um, and yeah, it's just that it it's very impressive how much can happen with so little. The the thing I, I think um, probably made the biggest difference um, towards driving towards minimalism, which is sort of a, I guess it. Uh, umbrella of what we're talking about right now right. um and again i think this comes from having come up as a uh primarily performing and not in spending time in studio was i would always do always i would often do vocals last meaning there would be some sort of scratch vocal take which would be good enough to know where you were in the song and not much else and the song would get built around that and thinking back to when we were making the record in in uh, Philadelphia in the '80s, I think we did that same way too. You know, we had a scratch vocal and guitar, uh, or maybe we recorded drums, bass, and uh, scratch vocals live. You know, to get live rhythm section um, passes. Sure. But the finished vocals didn't get put down until you know way late <clears throat> after after they'd taken apart the drum kit and put all the mics back in the drawer and you know restaged the room for vocals or whatever. And I do the exact opposite now. Um, and so like if, if I have a, a, a track, I want drums on the drummer gets my vocal, my finished vocal track. Um, and you know, it, it'll be recorded to a click typically. And I might have a piano or a guitar or something else in there to give some harmonic context and, and some dynamic and, you know, feel around it. Um, but that, that vocal is done. Um, I'll even go so far as to correct, you know, timing errors, breaths, clicks, pops, uh, DS, everything. I will get it like real pretty before see anyone hears it, even for the sake of laying down an overdub, just because um, I believe that the song gets built writer, writer, better, um, more, more right for, you know, whatever it is it's supposed to be if that vocal is there for everyone to hear from the get-go i think it builds the song almost on its own um and when i like listening to the the billy eilish stuff the other day it struck me very much that way too like 
everything that was happening was was happening around what she was doing Mm -hmm. and nothing was distracting from that um and you know we we all like to show off and like it's fun to play and like i you know i love playing the piano part i love playing the guitar part the bass part whatever like that but like none of that stuff really matters any more than it supports that vocal part and so having that vocal part there in the beginning is really helpful to me as somebody who comes back and plays a part later to to observe that you know to to um to support that and to to direct my energies in the service of that singing or that vocal or that that centerpiece uh, it might even be a vocal as a centerpiece it could be something else but the point is that the the foreground information is established so that the background information doesn't get um too um too over important um and then it, then there's i think a, a better balance and you're not it's not it it doesn't build up to become a thing where everything is trying to cram itself into the available space and then you put a vocal on top of it and you end up with um with like well you have only to listen to parish blues first album to get <laughs> to hear how that sounds you know um i can't I mean like, god we had like you know four acoustics two of them were 12 strings you know two electrics piano organ vocal backing vocals drums auxiliary percussion it just went on and on and on you know and like um oh dude the poor engineer the, the, yeah. the song that i that i keep harping on the one that's taking the most of my time uh drums bass piano organ two guitars uh vocals backing vocals uh and a 15 piece horn section Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah well you've used, you've used up half of a duality console on that already <laughs> yeah yeah i i i know i'm uh I, I'm I'm spoiled. I, I I I have a lot of horn players, but you know it's it's funny because a, a lot of the time I don't mix individual horns. Now I, I I barely mix individual horns. If I if I need to do minimal work on a horn uh, on a horn part, then I I will. But I I tend to mix them as instruments, um, which goes mm-hmm. back to the bussing thing. Like I will I no longer think of mixing horns individually i will always mix a horns bus that that's kind of like mm-hmm. like if 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 an individual track needs some minor eq to stand out or be pulled back or you know make sense within the context of the harmonies fine i'll do that but i'm always starting as bussing all of these tracks yeah. and making sure that i have all these tracks as essentially as one and then yeah. you know recording or mixing that way i mean it's a very it's kind of an old school way to mix it, it, you know it, 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 as best as we it's, can is you know it's really smart in a way because like you know if you're right it's old school because there was a lack of channels and they kind of had to bust but like the, well um, it wasn't even busting. there's a wisdom at, to, at that, there's a wisdom to it that that well like they might have been grouping and bouncing even well but, no not um, even or they, just they, one mic one mic you know <laughs> yeah. you, you do yeah. your three-piece horn section on one mic you know Right. Um, the, but let's, let's say you recorded your, your um, horns separately or somewhat. Um, you know, the, 
and I, I will also do this with backing vocals. I don't record horns that often, uh, sax occasionally, but, um, backing vocals, um, I'll bus them and I'll listen to the, the group, uh, before I listen to the individual tracks, because if you listen to an individual track, you will hear all sorts of minor variations in you know, pitch or timing or whatever, which by themselves in a vacuum will sound quite unsatisfactory. Yep. And then if you take the, the average of all those and you listen to the group, uh, you know, a great many of those inconsistencies will blend and disappear in the, in, and they'll average. And sometimes they'll even prov- provide really pleasant sort of, you know, chorusing and things like that. And then you can do what you said, which is you can look at the, there's going to be a few black sheep in there that stand out. That doesn't sound right. Or it's too loud, too soft, too fat, too thin. You can go back and make those corrections to the problem children in the mix. But like you're never starting there because like, God help you if you do. And I've done this the wrong way plenty of times with like backing vocals. You start to correct each backing vocal track. You get into time alignment, pitch correction, all this shit on that track only to realize it never really mattered. Right. <laughs> Once you get right. it in, into the mix of the group. And so it's like not wrong. It's just unnecessary. Uh, so I always, I try to start from the end and work backwards too. And like, I'll do this a lot of times with, uh, oh, you know, uh, visions of Johanna Dylan tune, um, which was actually the impetus for that whole project. Cause my older daughter's name is Johanna. And I thought it would be cool to record that song. She wasn't named after the song, but still. <laughs> sure. And, um, uh, Kimok agreed to, to, um, do a guitar part for that so he sent it to me and i listened i made the mistake of listening to the guitar part by itself i was like oh my god oh my god like i could hear like i don't know um pick up switch position change you know just random like artifacts and and shit um stuff that sounded like it was going to be a problem and that i was going to have to tackle it before it got you know finished and i was like no no wait i then I dropped it in the whole mix and listened. And I was like, no, that's all fine. You know, it's part of it's part of rock music for there to be things like mechanical noise coming from instruments, drum stands, pick scrapes, all that stuff. It's part of it. And if you look at it in isolation, it can be, you know, distracting. But when you put it all together, it's actually part of what that kind of music sounds like and is supposed to sound like. Um, and if you clean it all up, if you over sanitize everything at the individual track level, you put it all back together and you listen to it and you're like, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it, it, it doesn't have the, you know, it, it lacks the sharp edges that make that kind of thing for me anyway, as a listener, uh, work. I, I like that about it. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the sort of microscopes view is, um, is a rabbit hole for engineering. Um, I find I try, I try to stay out of it as much as possible, but I have found many a day, week and month go by where I am doing exactly what you're doing right now, which is taking little snippets of timeline and time aligning them, um, you know, trimming the lead and, and tail fade lengths on them and right and doing stuff. really good noisy vocal track with noise yeah like doing all yeah. that yeah if it's necessary yeah. and if if it's necessary in the way that you are doing a certain production uh, by all means go for it but if if you can avoid it you know right it's like eating crabs i love crabs but they're 
they're a fuck ton of work. You know, you got to sit there and you crack each piece open and pick the meat out. And when you're done, you get something that's like less than a half teaspoonful of, you know, it, 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 every now and then, like every Christmas, it's worth the battle to get a Dungeness crab and do that. But like, (laughs) if you had to do that every day, you know, it's not necessarily a good use of your time. Um, But uh, in the end, I think, you know, just every, everything I do that I, everything I have to fix as an engineer is one more thing. I try to not fuck up the next time I record a track as a musician. Right. Right. That's my school. Now I'm I'm curious because you you've talked uh, on top of your process you've talked a lot about how you jump into the analog so I'm really kind of curious if your rig uh, how how do you run stuff what what's your rig like what's and what's that process um, I use Samplitude which is a DAW on the PC um, that uh, the interface I use is uh, uh, SSL box is called uh alpha link mx and it's got um i have two of them but they gang together they use uh fiber for maddie and there's a card in the pc so i'm i have uh 32 out and 8 in i had more than that but i don't ever i i, I just actually sold the third unit because i don't ever record live drums i don't need 16 inputs i just need two usually at the most but um those are and they're they're word clocked over coax i use the actual hardware as the clock master because uh, that is supposed to be the stablest uh, arrangement for clock um, versus say using the pc as the clock master Mm -hmm. uh, or even an external clock Um, the uh the 32 channels of that analog coming out sorry 32 yes um two of them the first two are obviously the stereo uh, left right mix when i'm just doing two track stuff on the daw and then th- channels three through 32 are actually um individual channels uh that operate uh 28 through 32 or 24 through 30 i can't i can't count but the upper eight are all monos but the rest are stereos um so i'll do a mix and i'll i'll send channels to uh, on the daw to uh channels on the ssl um, so I, I can fan out all my analog outputs into, uh, you know, stereo buses of like maybe four stereo buses and maybe some odd individual outputs for certain instruments that don't need to go on buses, reverbs, for instance. And then um, that all goes into a Shadow Hills, um, sorry, it goes through a patch bay and then it goes into um, a Shadow Hills Equinox, which is a uh, sort of a weird animal. It's the only thing I know like it. It, it has a big volume knob on it that is um detented it's switched not not continuous so you can um get a, everything recalled physically for reconstructing mixes it's got a couple of choices of transformers and it has this ability to either ap- operate as a two track or as a 32 track um, analog summing device and so that sums and the sum output of that is my two track mix um, if I wanted to, I could put stuff on it, but that goes straight into a uh, uh, pair of converters. Um, I'm using a, and this is another sort of weird one-off box. It's called a A to D by API. It's got a pair of 312 preamps, and it's got a pair of A to D converters, which are separably useful. So I use the two preamps for recording, and I use the two converters as my two-track converters. Um, and that goes into a... Um, 
uh, into a, a digital two track, which I, for a long time was actually my MacBook. Um, but uh, I, I spend so much time away from my studio and I want to be able to like burn a mix and then go listen to it on my phone in the kitchen or in the car or what have you. So um, I did this thing. I got it's a Denon two track recorder. Uh, DN700R and you know it records at 44.1 up to 96 onto a SD card but it has an FTP server on it and um, it will transfer uh, the files as soon as they're recorded to an FTP site which I have on it have a computer that is connected to it by network um, in Dropbox and that immediately puts the mix in Dropbox, which immediately syncs it to the cloud, which immediately allows me to access the mix on whatever, you know, like phone or what have you. Um, and it was the single best workflow improvement I made in the last like year was being able to take a two track mix when I, when I made it, which I might make, you know, a dozen of those a day or something, if I'm working through a problem. And not have to copy the file, upload the file, download the file to listen to the file. Um, it can be archiving it while I'm working on the next mix. Um, I haven't used the converters on the Denon. I don't know how they are, um, but I'm satisfied with the ones in the API. So I don't. You know, I'm not. I'm not messing with that for now. Mm. Um, I've got some. So th that's the basic like structure of it. And then the patch bay allows me to use. Um, I have a choice. I've got some preamps and compressors and I can use them when I'm recording and tracking. You know, I can plug my mic into the preamp, into the compressor, into the input and, and track. But then when I'm mixing, I can repatch and I can put those compressors, in some cases they're channel strips, as bus instruments. You know, so I can run, um, I have a, a pair of uh, Neve Shelford channels, which I usually use for the vocals um, when I'm recording. They've got a, you know, preamp EQ compressor little channel strip design um i can use those as a pair of compressors on the mix so i might put the rhythm guitars through that or something when i'm mixing down and just use the the compressors maybe the eq on them um, and similarly I, I have a pair of um distressors which are kind of new for me um they've been around for a while they're they're really kind of swiss army knife type of compressor with a little bit of they add some yeah. distortion on yeah. um those are kind of cool i'm still I'm still feeling those out. Um, I used them on drums on this last project and I kind of dug what they were doing. Um, and uh, a Neve master bus compressor, which I was supposed to be using for my master bus and I'm not using it. To, I'm actually using it as my uh, foreground bus um, uh, compressor. So I'll write like lead vocals. We'll go through that. Sometimes a lead guitar or something like that. And it's, it's probably the most colorless thing I have. And so I can control things pretty well. Um, without imparting too much weirdness to them uh you know weirdness being something too specific to a, a sound like the api is very api sounding but the, the master bus compressor is pretty, yeah. pretty neutral um and then i have this um it's an art pro vla2 which is a, a art compressor um they're you know they're so they're like uh entry-level mid-range product they're great. yeah and you know what 
And just uh, just to go on a little bit of a tangent here, if you ever want to do modifications to those things, Revive Audio has some of the best modifications for those things. And among other things, they they do Behringer, Clark Technic, Warm Audio, uh, yeah. up to high end. I've, so, it, so I've been checking out some of their um, mods. I've never taken them up on one, but there was a uh, there's a guy out there um, who published a mod for the art. And it's, his name is Kenetech. And so it's called the Kenetech mod. I think it's K-E-N-N-E-T-E-C. And uh, it, it basically, it, you tear out the input. Um, they use capacitors for the input. And you rip that out and you put in a pair of old, in my case, it's ATC, A20, no, sorry, UTC A20 transformers. And these are like the size of a... Um, a salt shaker they're they're not small uh and they've got all their pins on the bottom and they were they were um you know one-to-one line transformers and they're uh not anything special except that they happen to have the right characteristics of uh you know of winding right um and they're not that expensive except that once once people realized that they made good substitutes for transformer cup, like you could rip out any capacitively coupled input and replace them with these transformers for transformer coupled input, they started to get scarce and pricey on eBay. But they're not, they're, they're, they're like, my point is that they're not anything like special, but they're not capacitive, tra- they're not capacitive inputs. Sure. So the, the result is that you get like this, this VLA, like the, it's a decent it's a decent compressor in its controls it has very fine control and it has detented yeah. knobs so it's recon- you can recreate mixes with it um it's nothing special sounding but with those transformers it has a certain deadness to it which is i would describe as similar to like the dbx 160 which was the the vu the thing that i even remember using these things in the studio in 1987 on like the kick drum and the snare and if you wanted something to just have a thud that was just kind of like it like happened and ended there was no magic no air no nothing but just like a dead impact of like dropping a sandbag you know um they did that and so for certain things like kicks usually sometimes the snare if you wanted the snare to have a little bit more balls to it um or or toms these compressors were just great um and the dbx's weren't that expensive in their day either now they're like you know well the vus are and when, once you go once you go yeah. you know the 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 single u half rack ones the 160as and the xts and the all that stuff which are very similar and they all they great. are yeah. Uh, yeah and even the dbx i think uh 160 is the is the modern rack version of it is pretty close um so this thing is like you know i almost I actually, I think I totaled this thing by modifying it because I don't know who would buy it from me. Honestly, it just does. You can't switch back. Like you can't go back to the non-transformer input, and it won't bypass because you have to. In the course of removing the offending capacitive input circuit, you also remove its ability to true bypass. So it's like <laughs> it's either patched in or it's not patched in. There's no like yeah. Um, but I like it, and I, I use it for um, for squashing the hell out of background atmospheric stuff, and it lets me mash it all up and then push it way down, um, and it 
doesn't sound bad, but it's also stuff that I know is so low level in the mix that even if this compressor sucked, which it doesn't, um, it wouldn't draw attention to itself. Um, and again, it has that deadness, which, which I, I think is an asset in that it doesn't, it helps whatever you put through it disappear. And you might ask, well, why not just take it out entirely? And I do that sometimes, <laughs> but, um, it's, um, it's it's a good um it's a good workhorse and i mean i i'm actually i think i've actually arrived at a point where my um my workflow has stabilized to the point where i i can now identify gear i don't need anymore um which you know sort of like i'm i'm coming over the cresting the top of the hill with the gear acquisition syndrome which you know is like a lifelong companion for most musicians yep. and engineers i'm sure yep. but um just to you know realize that i don't need any more than this it's like if you can't make it happen with this <laughs> the gear's not the problem you know right. like that's the that's a sort of a, a good point to reach um so who knows like i'm actually flirting with the idea of uh of downsizing to um, working all in the box again, but not right away. I'm going to have to ease into that. Um, I'm going to have to become a better engineer. But, uh, but yeah, I don't. You know, it would be. I know. I know there are world class engineers out there who do everything on a laptop. Well, you know, I mean, so think, um, I think I brought up shit. It's really about the. About the driver, not the car. Right. Well, I mean, Sheps. Sheps was the guy that had, you know, a wall full of the best compressors, EQs, dynamic, uh, uh, time-based effects, uh, every processor you'd want, uh, including some broken ones that he kept broken because they sounded better broken, and he mixed across two Neve consoles. And then all of a sudden, he just decided one day, I'm going to mix on a laptop, and now he mixes on a laptop. Well, nowadays he mixes in his house in London on an iMac and a pair of, uh, I think Adam audio speakers, I think he's using, but it's still completely in the box. That's very, that's very modest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and of course, you know, he's, he's Shep. So like when, when he needs a plugin to do something, he, he wants it to do, he'll, he'll, he'll get it, but he can still mix completely in the box after having been the guy that everybody knew as mixing across two Neve boards. Um, you know, and I, I look at a guy like him and I go, damn, you've really, you've really defeated gas, haven't you? Um, but you know, at, me being a, a tinker and a, and a fan of, of opening things and, and getting new sounds and, and not just being a mixer, you know, I, I, I like the idea of, of acquisition and modification and building things. Actually, that was something that you and I had talked about at the last Hartman meeting. Since we're on the topic of compressors, um, you had brought up the idea of making some of the pedals into 500 series and modifying them for studio use. And I remember you and I had yeah. talked about the compressor, the compressor yeah. in particular. Um, have you ever toyed with that idea to, to build that even just for yourself? uh modifying yeah i i've i flirted with two two ideas um one of them is is to build the compressor in a stereo form into uh rack you know or 500 mm -hmm. module um 
there would be some things I would change about uh, probably I'd I'd alter some things. I'd probably make them um, higher voltage power supply lines, you know, because a pedal's running off of nine volts. I would probably try to do the design at, at least forty-eight volts. Sure. Um, more. I mean, the, the I think the Neves run at a hundred volts internally, and like the headroom that provides is nice. Um, and uh, but yeah, you know, it was like I think I remember talking about that with you and. It was one of my um, mentors um, and and dear friends, Howard Danchik, who I had the fortune to work with when I was doing tech stuff. He was doing front of house for um, uh, Zero and and uh, Further and some of those bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a he's a veteran from the the Dead's crew, and um, before that, I think from uh, Hot Tuna or Jefferson Airplane, and um, you know he he's forgotten more about sound than I'll ever learn. And <laughs> he was saying like, he thought that the compressor would be a really interesting stereo bus compressor for live. Um, and he doesn't do a lot of studio stuff. I don't think I was, I was uh, chatting with him. I saw him in uh, December. Um, and he was commenting about how, you know, studio mixing, uh, confounded him cause he's, you know, he's been a live engineer his whole life. So the approach is sort of, far into him but he was thinking that compressor would be good for live and i mean i don't know if i agree or not um i don't know that there's any way to find out and except to try it you know um so that's one project that i keep in the back of my mind is perhaps worthy of exploration and then the other one is to do a temperature controlled um germanium fuzz where i can um i can Using a you know very simple uh, like Peltier cooler and um, a temperature control uh, feedback loop with a with a tuning knob on it and a digital readout, um, be able to set the temperature of the transistor because you know the the sound of those changes so dramatically from in the range of, of room temperature from like uh, fifty degrees Fahrenheit to eighty degrees Fahrenheit the sound is dramatically different and in my opinion better as it gets colder it, it gets to a certain point where it doesn't change anymore but in that range um the solidity and the, the sort of aggressiveness and the, the concentration um of that is i think of it as very much like tuning the the torch uh of like if you're using a if you've ever used a propane or an oxyacetylene welding torch right. you have all these gases coming out on fire and they basically come out in a huge freaking ball of flame until you tune the aperture correctly to get them to come out in a jet and once you get that tuned right that jet is as sharp as a knife of fire and so <laughs> the the uh, so maybe that's what we'll call this thing um but the the germanium transistors are very much the same way with temperature they have this focusing effect and when you get that temperature right that focal effect um you can even hear it go too far and cross over um you get it right it's just it's just uh you know it's the shiznit and i i remember a photo my across the street neighbor was this huge um zero fan it's a rail rat at all the um zero and kimok shows he sent me a picture of my fuzz in the um it was in a champagne bucket on ice 
um, next to the amp. He was, uh, Kimok was chilling it <laughs> before he played. Um, and I just thought that'd be really, you know, nice to be able to, uh, have a internal, uh, internal circuit temperature control do that for you. Um, so you could show up at any, you know, uh, sun drenched summer festival stage, you know, everything's flat black painted plywood and a thousand degrees. Um, and have this thing operate in its optimal condition. So that's the other, the other uh, sort of possible uh, future project. But I don't know any way to do that really effectively in a in a pedal. Um, kind of have primarily. It would have to kind of be some somehow incorporated into a rack unit or a or, or some it, part of amplifier. It, it would have to. Yeah, I mean, the, to me, the the greatest downside of that is that is condensation so right. if you have if you're in if you're in savannah it's going to be dripping wet in seconds after you turn on the cooler so there's got to be a way to um remove that moisture and the only way i know to do that is with airflow so yeah it would have to be um rack cased with with computer fans on it at which point of course now you've got all of these noise generate you know all this emi from fan coils and and what have you uh, the nice thing about peltiers is that they're semiconductors so they they have no moving parts they don't create electrical fields right. that oscillate when you have cooling um unless you have a really good like fancy ducted system with remote um sources of air movement you know you've got motors so um there's definitely some design challenges to that but you know it, it might be fun um, certainly be interesting to have some kind of temperature sensor in the thing and then do i don't know some kind of passive heat sink with a with proper ventilation that might be a start at least in pedal form it w wouldn't do this the whole thing but yeah i mean i i actually tried a passive heat sink once by like machining a block of aluminum with a hole that just fit over the compressor i saw the transistor with some heat sink compound mm -hmm. you know um the problem is if it's warm enough for the heat to be a problem, that block of aluminum is that temperature. And it's actually it's actually dumping more heat into the transistor than it's dissipating. Hmm. Uh, unless you've got active cooling um, sucking heat out of that block of, of aluminum. So um yeah, it's uh you know, it's, I I guess most of us have been fine with germanium transistors being their sort of um unpredictable selves but it struck me as like especially for studio recording right. like if you wanted to go in and get that thing right right where you like it this would let you do it you know um but without having to tell them to turn the air you know like what's <laughs> was like run the air conditioning for four hours before i do my passes at, right uh, or you know, or, or run it right now and we'll put the uh, and we'll uh put the pedal in the air conditioning duct yeah um yeah it wouldn't be the, the strangest thing that has been done. <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, if you think about it, Prince put a shower into Sunset Sound so he could live there while he made one of his records. We did backing vocal tracks for the Parish Blue album by uh, whoever it was. It was me or, or uh, I think Charlie was doing some backing vocal tracks too. The way we, this one sound, this one song we wanted to get the backing vocal sound, we had the, the singer lying on their back on the floor and someone like, pinning them to the ground with their hands and their full body weight on their shoulders so they couldn't get up 
and then the mic was over their face and you'd sing up into the mic while straining against the person holding you down. Um, I honestly can't say in retrospect whether that achieved any result that we couldn't have otherwise. But at the time, we thought that that was the shortest possible route to the sound we were looking for. (laughs) Well, it's certainly an intriguing way of getting things done. Um, Yeah, and it wasn't that different than how we conducted most of our business either. We were, you know, like we we had gone from a bunch of friends to being a slightly dysfunctional family at that point in our evolution as a band. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think every every band is a slightly dysfunctional family, aren't they? Hopefully. This was fun for many reasons, mainly for me being that I've known Theo for half my life. And Theo was the primary introduction for me into electronics and things that continue even on in this show. A lot of my Gear Talk segment actually comes from working for Theo as the tone specialist and pedal demonstrator at Hartman Electronics. Being able to sit down and talk to Theo so candidly about everything from his influences to how he started the company and the greater details that I didn't know at the time was a lot of fun for me to listen to and learn about. In fact, during our conversation, I felt a lot of times where I would instead take off my hat as the interviewer and just really sit there and listen. Theo, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great catching up with you, and it was fun to hear how you started and your influences in both music and design. I can't wait to take what I've learned in talking to you and apply it to my own circuitry design. Hopefully, though, I get to do a little bit of collaboration with you on it in the future. For all of you guys listening, check out Theo and his amazing music that he's been producing lately. His link will be in the description of the podcast. Go check it out. It is wonderful tunes. Uh, I've been enjoying it a lot, and I think you will too. Unjustified past nightclubs, tired balconies, fake sobbles, shops, and Welcome to Gear Talk. Since today is the second part of my conversation with Theo Hartman, I decided to go into my gear collection and pull some of my favorites from the Hartman Electronics line to show you today. I gotta tell you guys, I didn't have to look very far for these. These pedals sit on my desk and are used almost daily. Today, I'm going to be sharing a demo of the Hartman Vintage Germanium Fuzz, LM308 Op Amp Distortion, and Analog Flanger. These pedals were clones and circuit design updates of the classic Fuzzface, Proco Rat, and Electroharmonics Electric Mistress Flanger, respectively. In this rough demo, I've used all three in different situations. The guitars in the intro and outro have the flanger on them. 
The bass and left electric guitar have the 308 distortion, and the right electric has the germanium fuzz. Now, after the intro, the first half of the demo, the guitars are running through the Hartman pedals. In the back half, they're running through their name brand counterparts. Left guitar is my original Proco Rat, and the right guitar is a silicon fuzz face. Ideally, I would have used our Hartman SFZ dual fuzz on the silicon side or the vintage silicon fuzz from Hartman Electronics. However, my germanium was in slightly better shape and was easier to access at the moment. Because of this, the fuzzes will sound relatively different off the bat as the two transistor types pretty drastically change the tone of the pedal. Likewise, my original RAT sounds pretty different to the LM308 from Hartman. Now, in the past, I have done a pretty good job at matching the RAT and the 308 pedal. But today, I decided to change it up a bit. I wanted to show the individuality of the Hartman LM308 while also showing off where it came from. If you want more details on the Hartman pedals and in-depth tone demos, check out the Ready to Record YouTube channel in the next couple of weeks, where I will be posting tone demos on the pedals and showing off the sounds they can create. I'm pretty good at it too. After all, I was the Hartman Tone Specialist. For now though, I will leave you with this very rough draft of a song recorded with pedals from Hartman Electronics. Enjoy. That's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Mr. Theo Hartman for being on the show. Man, it was so great talking to you. I can't wait to talk to you more soon. Tune in next time. We're going to have Adam Peace on the show. We're going to talk about everything from his entrance into the world of music and learning trombone all the way to now and his outdoor sessions and how he's been recording. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel D3 Cohen signing out from Blue Door Productions, Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. Thank you.